Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Start out in a word of prayer. Father, thanks for this night uh, that you've given us and um, for this opportunity to look at this passage in 1 Thessalonians. I pray that as we examine Paul's heart for the people here that we may um, gain a little bit of that for ourselves, that we see our his care for these Christians, these believers, his children in the faith. Then, fathers, we look into 1 Thessalonians 4 and see the issues he faces there regarding their purity. I pray that you teach us as well and uh, help us to love you more, honor you more, and just speak to us through your word tonight in Christ's name. Amen. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul gives a defense of himself to the Thessalonians. You remember what had happened is somebody evidently cropped up in the church. We don't know who that was. Um, it may have been a person. It may have been the Judaizers that followed Paul all over the place. It may have been just the... the um, I guess the uh, opposition from the city itself. I mean, you had opposition there with the Jews that were upset because he had led some people to Christ. You had the opposition from the Gentiles who uh, wanted to persecute these people who thought they were rabble-rousers. Whatever the case, uh, some said, well, Paul was just in it for the money. He's out to take um, advantage of you. And the reason he left town so quick is really he's just on to find some more victims. And he had to deal with that. And he did in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, he goes from a defense to his heart. This shows his, his emotion. This is a picture of his feelings for these people. And uh, I think it's very important that we, we see both of these chapters, in a sense, sort of as two sides of, a, of the same issue. Side 1 in chapter 2, he's given external defense of those who, accus- who are accusing him of being just another one of these traveling, marauding philosophers. And in three, he says, the reason I'm not that way is because I really love you people. I care for you. And you see his heart of compassion. Therefore, when we can endure it no longer, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. Um, The we here is most likely what they call an epistolary we, which is not... We as in me and somebody else, but we as in me. This is only him by himself saying this because he says, I want to be left in Athens alone. Well, if he's in Athens alone, it had to be more than, it, had, it couldn't have been more people making this decision. Um, others say, nah, really it's referring to Timothy, Silas, and Paul who's making this decision. Really, it's, it's sort of a moot point. In whatever case, whatever way you want to interpret this, Paul was left in Athens alone. So from Athens, he sent Timothy back to the Thessalonian church. Um, The word for alone there is a fascinating word. It means to be abandoned. Yeah. Three. It means to be abandoned. Um, It's often, in classical Greek, it was used to refer to abandoning a child shortly after birth. Um, in some cases, it means to, to die, to be abandoned at death. This is a pretty strong term. It's not that 
Paul just sent them away, but Paul felt abandoned. And uh, I think this is an important sort of issue to, to maybe get a hold of here, that you know, we think of Paul as the type A, you know, in your face, knock them down, highly energetic, always on the go type person. But yet, apparently, he had a soft side. And that soft side was he needed the encouragement of his fellow companions. What he did was a tough thing. I mean, stop and think about it. He walks into a town. He knows nobody in that town. He preaches the gospel. Half the people hate him right off the bat. He's being persecuted, essentially run out of town. And he goes to the next town and starts it all over again. So it's a tough life. And in that tough life, where does he gather strength to keep at it? Well, it comes from other believers. And who are those other believers? Well, they were his traveling companions. And you see these traveling companions were with Paul just about on all of his missionary journeys. Um, we know of Silas. We know of Timothy. We know of Luke. Luke was with Paul on many occasions. Um, and you read the, the um, book of Acts. There's the, if you remember our New Testament survey, the we passages, where, where you, the, the writer is saying, we went here and we went there. And then he splits off, so well, Paul went here and Paul went there. Then it's back, we, we. And whoever the writer was, was with Paul on many occasions. And that writer, we have been able to determine pretty accurately, is being Luke. So Luke was with Paul. And others, uh, Demas was one. Um, Demas is a sad story. His name means popular. And Demas, if you remember in first, no, Second Timothy, forsook Paul. When it going got tough, he took off and left Paul all by himself. And that, no doubt, hurt Paul tremendously. But Paul gained great strength and encouragement in what he was doing by, uh, or from his companions that traveled with him. But it was more important for him to find out how Thessalonica was doing than it was for him to have Timothy with him, encouraging him. So he sends Timothy away. This is a picture of self-sacrifice. This picture of one who has more concern about the well-being of some other person than he is of himself. And he said, I want to send Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. The word for establish there means to mend or to fix. And what he wanted to send Timothy to do is say, basically, that Timothy's commissioning was a very simple one. Timothy, go check out Thessalonica and take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. Whatever it is, I want you to take care of that. Um, if they need to be strengthened, I want you to strengthen them. If they need to be encouraged, I want you to encourage them. If they need uh, a little bit of discipline, maybe, I want you to do that. Whatever needs to be done, I want you to take care of it. And above all, find out how they're doing. Um, they're not, they haven't been Christians very long. And remember the parable of the sower. A lot of the seed, when it falls on the rocky soil, it sprouts up. You think, wow, man, look at that. Fruit. Heat comes. It's dead because there's no root. And he said, I want you to check it out. And I want to encourage you concerning your faith. I want, to, I want you to be encouraged and strengthened. Um, Timothy was very good at this. In, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about Timothy being sent um, to the church at Philippi. And by the way, where was Philippi? Not very far from Thessalonica, right? 
both on the Ignatian Highway. Remember, Paul went to Philippi, then he went over to Thessalonica. So it's very close. <clears throat> and uh, in night, verse 19 of Philippians 2, he says, But I trust in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Uh, Paul wants to find out how the Philippians are doing. And so who does he send? Timothy. Why does he send Timothy? For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Like-minded to whom? Paul. To Paul. Paul says, if I wanted to send somebody that, that has the same feelings I do, the same um, care for you as I do, the same um, importance in things as I do, I'm going to send Timothy. He's my man. For all seek their own, not the things which are Christ. Wow. That's sort of sad. Um, they had that same problem back in those days. You know, people, sometimes people are in the ministry for themselves and not for Christ. As long as it goes their way, they're okay, but when it doesn't, they're gone. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. You know, I, I look back at over the last few years, even at this church, and I see people that leave the church, and the reason they leave is because something didn't go their way. There's no theological issue. There's no heresy being taught. Um, there's, there, it's just uh, it didn't go the way they wanted, or, or their opinion wasn't wasn't listened to, or, or maybe something happened that they wanted to happen differently. So instead of saying, "Well, I'm just going to tough it out," because I'm not here for me, I'm here for Christ. They're gone. You know, and I guess, you know, when I look at Timothy now, and I have to ask myself the question, why is it that I do what I do? Why do I do that? Um, am I a pastor because I get paid to do that? Or is it because that's what God's called me to do, and the pay is all right, but I mean, it's, it's not the driving, motivating factor of what I do. Um... Do I do this because I get uh, recognition? Or because people think I'm a great godly man if I do this? Or I get some reward or I get some, some I don't know, temporal significance out of this thing, whatever you want to call it. Uh, why is it you do what you do? Timothy did the things he did not because he wanted something for himself, because he was interested in serving Christ. And Paul had the same heart. He, wanted, he was interested in serving Christ. And one of the hardest things for somebody who, who sincerely wants to do their best for others, one of the hardest things is to have their motives questioned. I don't know if that ever happened to you. That's the hardest thing in the world, is to have somebody question your motives. Paul is saying, uh, for all seek their own, not the things of Christ, but you know his proven character. That as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. As a son with the Father, you know his character. You've observed him over a long period of time. Um, you know, I, I, I think back, too, to, to the fact, when, when I look at churches today, a church of our size, a church, a lot, some of the larger churches, the average stay of a member in that church is like three years or something like that. If Pastor Walls was here, he could tell us what the statistic the, 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 the real statistic is it's not very high. It's only like two or three years. 
the average stay in a, in a church. How, how do you develop proven character and a track record if you're never there? You know, I, I look at people that go from church to church to church to church to church. And, and I, I had to laugh. A couple of them left open door about five years ago, and they found their way back here. They went around to all the other churches and didn't see them any better, so they came back here. You know? um, the question is, if, if you're going from church to church, how do you establish anything? You can't. How do you, how do you prove yourself? A man of God. You walk into church and say, Hi, I'm a man of God. It doesn't work that way. You have to prove yourself over a period of time. Paul says Timothy's proven himself. He's not a fly-by-night. He's not in today, gone tomorrow. He's proven himself over a long period of time. And he says, I want to send Timothy to you in Philippians. And he does the same thing in Thessalonica. He sends Timothy there. They want to encourage them for their faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. The, the word for shaken there um, means to, 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 it has behind it the idea of a dog wagging its tail, believe it or not. And why does a dog wag its tail? Because you pay attention to it. It's going to get something out of the deal. If I wag my tail and look hungry, I get fed kind of thing. And, and the idea that many commentators think he's, Paul's hitting at here is in the middle of this persecution, these Christians are in the middle of intense persecution, what is the temptation to do? What's the temptation? Look, you know, swear off this religion business and we'll quit bugging you. We'll quit persecuting you. Look, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Why go through all of the pain? Just, just deny the Lord, and, and it'll be okay. This goes back to Hebrews, you know, where it talked about those who, who refused, um, refused to deny the Lord, accepting rather the reproach of men. They refused to deny God, and quite honestly, it's possible that that is exactly what Paul is meaning here. These Christians are in intense persecution, and the temptation for them is to say, look, it ain't worth it. Um, if we just deny the Lord or we quit not, let's not be so um, radical about our faith. Let's just be, you know, keep it low, down, low key, quiet, and, that, and uh, we'll get along okay. And that's the temptation. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to be shaken by these afflictions. I don't want you to be shaken loose and moved by the, by the trouble you're going through so that you deny the Lord. For you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. Appointed to what? Persecution. Now, is that the message you hear today? The message you hear today is if you're a Christian, you shouldn't have any persecution. If you're a Christian, you're not supposed to suffer. If you're a Christian... You're the one that's supposed to be driving the Cadillac and having all the money in the bank and being well and healthy and everything. And if you're not, it's because you have no faith. Paul is saying, look, you know something. You know affliction is part and parcel of the Christian life. What are you shocked about? You know that. You, you know that. 
Um, it goes back to, to Christ in John 15, who's telling his apostles or disciples, in the world you'll have this tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So if the world hated me, they're going to hate you just like they hated me. What do you think? You think you're better than the master? Forget it. We have this idea today that we're not supposed to have any trouble. And when we do get persecuted, we think it's some aberration. Whereas Paul is saying it's normal. The, norm, the abnormal thing is not to be persecuted. You know? Now, when you think of persecution, what do we think of? Well, we usually think of being on the rack, you know, being stretched or something like that. But persecution takes many forms. Ridicule is one. Physical persecution is another. Um, just suffering the, the scorn of the world. Christians have always been a minority. They've always been that way. I had to, I got a kick, uh, not a kick, but I, I sort of, I just shake my head sometimes. I get these mailings. One was a mailing by Pat Robertson, who was starting to form what he called the Christian Anti-Defamation League. And was soliciting contributions for this. And the whole idea behind it is that he's going to sue people that talk bad about Christians. I'm sitting there thinking, what's wrong with this picture? He wanted to sue, you know, the ACLU. He, he wanted to sue. If anybody said anything bad about Christianity, he wanted to sue him for libel and slander. And I'm, I'm sitting there. I, I just don't, I can't see Paul taking donations for the Christian Anti-Defamation League back in the New Testament. It's part of being a Christian. My father-in-law says, if you don't want to run with the big dog, stay on the porch. I mean, that's part of being a Christian is you are being persecuted. Paul said, you know you're appointed to this. Don't let them shake you. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. I mean, when we were with you, we told you you'd suffer tribulation. I mean, this is not a secret. We were there. You know about this. It's not a secret. You would suffer tribulation. Don't say we would suffer tribulation. And Paul could probably stand up and say, if anybody's been persecuted, here I am. If you want to see what he's been persecuted by, go over to 2 Corinthians what chapter what, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Talks about being shipwrecked, talks about being beaten with rods and all this stuff. Now, he knew what it was like. and he, he said, when we were there, we told you you were going to suffer persecution. Now, I don't understand how it is that somehow this whole notion is missed by many of the Christians today. We're well, not supposed to suffer persecution. Supposed to. And for this reason, in other words, he says, I know the persecution is coming. When I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith. Lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Paul is saying, when I came to you, and I left it, it looked like you were really Christians, but I wanted to make sure. I wanted to make sure. Now, what does persecution do to the true believer? Proves you, doesn't it? Proves you. I think one of the reasons we got so many tears in the church today is there's no persecution, right? What's the cost of being a Christian nowadays in America, by and large? Nothing, right? Nothing at all, but what if, what if uh, it costs you your life? What if it costs you your job? What if it costs you 
financial distress? What if you were persecuted? How many people would still come to church? Numbers would go down, wouldn't they? Paul's saying here, he said, I want to make sure that our labor wasn't in vain. I know you were persecuted. I know you were there. And I want to make sure that um, I'm, I was hoping that, that you were really genuine. Because the persecution will, will, will split them out. That's the, that's the whole notion of the parable of the tares with the rocky soil. I mean, the persecution will show you for what you really are. And, and I think this is something, too, to think about. If you are a true believer, can you deny the Lord Fully and finally deny the Lord. What do you think? You probably could. That they, I think that you could be maybe convinced to do so. Finally, yeah. I mean, I think in the sense. They walk into a church and they, and they go in and watch machine guns and they said that they shoot everybody that believes they're a Christian. How many people would walk out of that room and feel a question? Mm -hmm. Probably could, but I don't know if that doesn't necessarily mean that you're still not a Christian. No, I, I would agree with that. I agree. Um, it would not mean you're Christian. But what do you think would eventually happen? In what way? Person? Do you think that person could forever deny the Lord? Yeah. And I would agree with that. Could, could, a, could a person in the, the stress of the moment deny the Lord? Well, yeah. I mean, look at Peter for crying out loud. I mean, pick one. He, he's one that did that. But what happened to him? He didn't stay there. How about David? But, but God didn't let him go. Um. I don't think that as a true believer, you can, in a, in a final sense of the word, deny the Lord. Because God won't let you. Because you can't. You're different. You can, in the duress of a moment, do something. But it won't last. Because if you're a true believer, the Holy Spirit keeps you, but the Holy Spirit convicts you. Um, I was. I don't know what the man's. I don't know the name of the guy. But there was a man who was uh, was imprisoned for his faith. One of the, in the. It's in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, I think it was. And tortured and, and, and forced to to recant Christ. And he signed, you know, the document I recant Jesus Christ, whatever. And they let him go. And he was so overcome by grief and by the shame of what he did, that he recanted his recantation. <laughs> they put him back in prison, and when they took him out to burn him at the stake and lit the fire, his statement was, let that part of me that deny my Lord be the first to burn. And he put his hand in the flame as it, as it, it burned, it, you know, just burned his hand off in the flame of, of his shame for denying the Lord. He came back. Now, what about the unbeliever? Will they come back? 
Probably not. Probably not. See, that, 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 that shows the, the true believer from the false. And, and Paul knew that. Paul knew that the true believers would hang in there. But, and, and here's a question. How, did he, how, was he to know, how, how was he to know from looking at these people whether they were true believers or not? What was it that gave it away? Yeah. Did they stick it out? You know, how many people in your church are truly born again? I wonder sometimes, you know, I come in here on a Sunday morning and look out and see 800 people in the auditorium. I wonder how many of them are truly born again. I mean, truly born again. I think, who was it? Somebody said that, uh, that you should preach such that um, with the understanding at least half your congregation is lost. Now, see, we like to think everybody there's... And, and, you know, we, we don't know. I mean, you can't see the halos and all that stuff. But, but it's, it's so easy to be a Christian nowadays. You can hang around the church for a long period of time and never catch anything. It's easy to do that. Paul wanted these people to be true. And because he sent Timothy in verse 6, he said, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, you know, Timothy came back and the report was, hey, these, this is real. These people are truly born again. These people truly love the Lord. These people are real. That you always have good remembrance that's greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Not only did the true believers stick it out, but they wanted to see Paul as badly as Paul wanted to see them. Which means that not everybody in the church had fallen to the words that the people spoke that came in and spoke against Paul. Not everybody believed it, but some did. But those are truly born again. They knew who Paul was, and they wanted to see him as badly as he wanted to see them. And that you have good remembrance of us. In other words, remember the good things about us. And he encourages, he's encouraged by this is the This is the encouragement of a pastor. Here's a man who's poured his life into this church. He's gone away hoping against hope that maybe they'll be okay. Maybe they'll hang in there. And he comes back and finds out they did. And he's overjoyed. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. In our persecution, our distress, the, the trials we found ourselves in, it was encouraging to know that you hung in there. That kept Paul going. The thing that kept Paul going in all of his trials and tribulations is a realization that there was real fruit out there. And sometimes that's the only thing that keeps you going. He was afraid that maybe they had fallen away. They didn't. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Now we live, and the idea of living there is really live. Now we're a joyous. Now we're, we, we have joy that you've stuck it out. You're hanging in there. Paul's great joy was to see those who profess faith in Christ stick it out. Because that showed that they were truly born again. They truly knew Christ. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we were, we rejoice for your sake before our God? What brought Paul joy? Money? Fame? 
Human accolades. What, part, what brought Paul joy was the knowledge that these people knew Christ. That brought him joy. Remember back in, in chapter 2, what's our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Aren't even you our joy? Paul's not looking at an imperial margarine crown that pops on his head when he leads somebody to Christ. He's looking to go to heaven and see those people that he was able to minister. That's his reward, those people in heaven. What thanks could we render? That, that's sort of a, a rhetorical question. There is no thing. I mean, it's something so great, there's no way I can be thankful enough for it. For the joy with which we rejoice for your sakes. And joy here, notice even though when he says this, he's in distress and persecution. So joy's not related to how well things are going. Joy is related to doing that which is right. He rejoiced that these people we're doing well. For night and day we pray exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Every day and every night we pray to see you. We pray to come there and visit you. Why? So we can perfect what is lacking. And any idea here, you know, when you look at what is lacking in your faith, it's not like they were missing a large component. Rather, he wanted to minister to them. He wanted to minister to them in the sense that he wanted to impart to them anything that they were missing. Any, he wanted to encourage them. He wanted to help them grow. He wanted to uh, maybe instruct them better. Whatever it is, it's not that they didn't have any faith. And it's not that they had a defective faith. But it's nothing more than what you know, you do every Sunday when you stand up, Willie, and preach a sermon. What are you doing? You're trying to give those people something that they lack in their faith. It's not that they don't have a faith or their faith isn't good enough or it's defective. Rather, you're just trying to strengthen it even more. And I think the idea of your faith there, he's using faith as, as just a sort of a uh, an all-encompassing word to refer to their belief their understanding of the word, their life, Christian life. It, it's the encompassing thing. And it's a faith that works its way out in their actions and what they do. If you don't live out your faith, you don't have faith. And then in verse 11 through 13, he gives a prayer for the church. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way to you. This is a prayer. He said, I pray night and day. And here's what my prayer is, that God may direct my way, my path to you, that somehow I may be able to come and visit you, that God would allow me to make that journey. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you. Um, this is interesting. If you read verse 11, 12, and 13, translate that to your average prayer meeting. Go to your average prayer meeting. What would people be asking you to pray for regarding the Thessalonians? What would the prayer be? 
pray for themselves. What were they facing at this point, the Thessalonian believers? What was the attitude of society against them? Persecution. So what would, what would most people ask prayer for? You've got, a, you've got a better church than he does. <laughs> I'm joking. But think about it. We'd be, we'd be saying, Lord, you know, take away the persecution. Turn the heat down. Yeah. It's not good. Moody, Moody uh, a few months ago, a couple months ago, Moody had a special on the suffering church. The church that suffers persecution. And uh, their prayer, if you listen to Jim Warren, who, you know who Jim Warren is. Uh, and, um, do you listen to WCRF at all? No, 1420 was. Okay. Um, he, he does uh, um, all the, the midday show that comes on from 430 to 6. Um, 103. 103, yeah. And... Uh, what he was talking about there is how we need to pray for our suffering Christians that God, that, that God would take away their persecution, that the society would accept them and not be so harsh with them, and on and on and on. I'm sitting here thinking, is that what Paul would have been praying for? He was saying we need to pray for our suffering Christians, our suffering brothers and sisters, that, uh, that the persecutions they're facing, that the governments might quit persecuting them. And we need to, to pressure our government, and we need to write our congressmen and senators to pressure these other countries to quit persecuting these Christians. And I was thinking about that, and I said, uh, what, what would Paul say to that? How would Paul handle that? Doesn't sound anything like this one. I'll tell you what, if you go to Philippians, you go to Colossians, you go to Ephesians, you go to 2 Thessalonians, doesn't sound like any of his prayers. You go to Peter, it doesn't sound like his. Paul was not interested in the fact that they were going through persecution. Why? Because that's normal. Come on. What do you expect? What did he pray for? Strength. In the middle of your persecutions, may you endure. Not that the persecution will go away. And I can't help but think, you know, when Jim... When he, when he was talking about that, I wanted so much to get on my cellular phone and call them and say, what do you, what's, what's wrong with you people? Now, that would have been bad because Chuck Colson was, he was interviewing Chuck Colson who was in on this thing. And I would have essentially told Chuck Colson on national radio that he was an idiot. But I, I just want to say, what's wrong with, with this picture? Well, <coughs> Christianity is now a political movement. 
And, and we, need to, we need to force our congressmen, our senators, and our national government to censor these other governments for their persecution of, America, of, of Christians, I mean. That's not what Paul saw. What does the Bible say? The Bible says we're to weep with those that weep, we're to rejoice with those who do rejoice. But it does not say anywhere that we are to pray that the persecutions go away. In the middle of persecutions, Paul prayed for strength for these people. In Colossians, he prays for the Colossian church, and he says in chapter 1, verse, verses 9, For this reason, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. I'm praying for you all the time. What am I praying for? Well, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Hmm. First prayer is that you may know God. You may understand his will and do it. That you may walk worthy of the Lord. Hmm. Sounds like living a holy life. Fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I want you to understand more and more about God. And I want you to be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. What's patience and long-suffering referred to? Persecution, the middle of persecution, that the persecution go away? No, that you have patience and joy with long-suffering. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Don't see anything there about removing the persecution. Turn the heat down. Did Paul ask that the persecutions be lifted for him? No, he asked for boldness that he may proclaim the gospel in the middle of it. And in here, verse 12, he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you. How do you abound in love? Well, you show love by going through persecution and loving other believers and ministering to them. And Paul wasn't interested in their physical well-being. He was interested in their spiritual well-being. So that, verse 13, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints, that he may establish you holy and blameless. Without blame. And I couldn't help but think as I listen to all this stuff on the persecuted church how, how skewed we have our perspective at times. We just see this, life. You know, we're wrapped up in the physical existence. We're wrapped up in whatever, our, you know, our, our physical needs, our health, our prosperity, whatever it is. And we lack an eternal perspective at times. An eternal perspective that suffering brings. Paul didn't pray for these people that Everybody quit bugging them. He didn't pray that the persecution would go away. He prayed that they would live godly lives in the middle of it and be a testimony of witness. See, that's, that's, where, that's where you come to shine through. You look at the average person a day when things are going their way, they look pretty on top of things, right? All right, now turn everything in their work lives upside down, and if they stay stable, what does that show? Well, they're either nuts or they have something that goes deeper than their situation. They have an anchor that goes deeper than what they're facing. This is the concern that Paul had for these people. He loved them. 
He loved this church. And he wanted them to be encouraged and established in their faith. He wanted to make sure that in the middle of their persecutions that they would remain stable and not be blown about. And he knew that God could do that. See, it's God that gives us the ability to hang in there. It's not me that does it. It's God that helps me, enables me to hold on to him. Because left to myself, I couldn't hold on to him. Then chapter 4, Paul turns to some practical issues. A few more practical issues. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Uh, the, the point that Paul's making here is, you know, I was really encouraged by what Timothy said, but you could do better. There's a sense in which we all can do better. You ever know a Christian who thinks they've arrived? I know a few. They feel they've gotten there. They feel there's, you know, they've made it. Um, and when you talk to them about doing better, they think they're pretty good. I've made it. I'm there. Paul's saying you're never there. You never quite make it. Um, Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about this personally for himself. In Philippians chapter 3, he says in verse 12, not that I had already attained or I'm already perfect. I haven't already attained. And he'll tell us what that means in a minute. He said, I haven't attained it. And I'm not perfect yet. The word for perfect there is mature. I, I've not made it. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. What's Paul saying he wants to hang on, wants to get? What's he want to lay hold of? Well, he wants to lay hold of the same thing for which Christ laid hold of him. Now, why did Christ save you? Might glorify himself. He loved us. And, I mean, the bottom line, you're saved because God, it glorifies God. Everything, that, that's the reason in the universe, to glorify him. Now, how do you glorify Christ? How do you do that? How do you glorify God? How do you show the world what God is like? By acting like God, right? So why did Christ redeem us? He redeemed us. Titus tells us this. Titus chapter 2. To be a peculiar people. Now, it's not odd or weird. It's just to be a, a chosen elect people zealous of good works. God saved me to do good works. I.e., he saved me to be Christ-like in my character why did Christ save Paul? He saved Paul in order to make Paul an example of Christ's likeness. So really what Paul in a roundabout way is saying is, I'm stretching out to become Christ-like because that's what Christ saved me for, to be like him. 
Now, if you want to know what that means, in Philippians 1, 6, he says um, uh, in verse uh, 6, being confident of this very thing that he has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see the, the, this, this growing Christ-likeness, even your sanctification, and we're going to get to First Thessalonians, but the, the striving for godliness, for holiness. And Paul's saying, I am stretching, and the picture he uses is of a runner stretching to, to the finish line, to, to, to cross the line. Straining every muscle. Why? Because I haven't, I haven't reached it. Now here's a question. Do you reach it in this life? You never reach it. But does that mean you quit stretching? Yeah, the, in a sense it's, it's, it's almost paradoxical. Paul is saying, I want, I'm stretching to reach a prize that I'll never get in this life. Now, someday I'll get it. How do you get it? Well, in heaven you are Christ-like. You do catch it. But the reason God saved me here is to be an example of what God is like and the way I'm like God is I act like God. And the way I act like God is I have godly attitudes. I, I exhibit holiness and godliness in my life. And Paul says, I press on. And I forget about my failures. I'm still reaching forward. I'm still reaching forward. So, in a sense, no matter how well you do in the spiritual life, you can do better. You can always do better. No matter how much you know about the Word, you always know just a little bit more. You can always strive just a little bit more. Because we never attain perfection in this life. And Paul is encouraged. Paul is saying, man, it is wonderful. It is great that you have made it this far, but press on because you can do better. And, and that's not to be taken as, a, um, as him chastising them. It's, it's not to be taken negatively. It's not like Paul is telling them, you know, come on, you lazy bums, get on with it. I mean, he does that to some other people, but not these. Because that's not, that's not the issue, because they're growing. The question is, are you growing? Not that have you reached it, or are, you, are you growing? Are you better today than you were a week ago, a month ago, a year ago? Is there an upward progression? That's, that's the issue that God is looking for, is, 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 is growth. We all grow at different stages. We all grow at different rates, but we're to grow. And he said, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. I mean, that's what he's talking about, how to walk. The idea of walk there is your daily conduct, your manner of life, what you do, that you may walk and please God. And where did they get that? They got that from Paul. Now, how did they get that from Paul? Because Paul did it. Now, did Paul attain it? Has he, has he attained perfection? No, he never did. But he was farther along than they were. You know, we all, we all have those people that we can look up to. We all need to realize that there are others that are looking up to us. And that's not an issue of pride. It's not an issue of arrogance or anything like that. It's an issue that I'm trying to be like Christ. 
And I've worked through some of those battles and issues in my life, and that can serve as a model to help other people as they strive to Christ-likeness. And by the way, just as an aside, that's an incentive for us, isn't it? I remember for many years I, I struggled in my Christian life. You know, I was on the bubble. I wanted to be godly. I wanted to grow. I wanted to really move ahead. And I felt like Paul, you know, Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. I just want to go. And then something happened that, that got me really moving. And that was I started discipling somebody. They say, well, gee, Alan, you know, you had all these troubles your own and you're trying to tell somebody else. Yeah, but he knew less than I did. All right. Um, he, was, he wasn't far, as far, far along as I was. And what that did to me is that made me stop and think many times, saying, you know, I'm going to meet with Mike tonight. His name was Mike. And I'm helping him work through this issue in his life. And how can I help him work through that if I haven't worked through that? So what it did is it forced me to work through it so I could help him work through it. Because he was looking up to me. And that forced me to be diligent. It's the same thing with this class. Why is it that I spend a lot of time studying First Thessalonians? Because I'd do it if it wasn't for this class. Don't, think, don't you think it? It's because I have to be ready. And we all need that. We all, we all need that accountability. So it works, both, it works two ways. Paul is saying, I was a model of how you should walk. Now you walk like me. You walk like me. For you know, verse 2, what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember what we taught you, the things we said. You remember our instruction. You were there. Paul did not only say, do as I do, or, or do as I say, but he says, do as I do. If you want to know what it's like, Paul says, for someone to work diligently, well, take a look at me. I was, I was, I was talking to um, one of the guys that teaches in Cleveland West, Cleveland West Extension, Monday, um, who owns an ice cream store, and he says some of the worst employees he has are Christians. <clears throat> Why is that? I don't have an answer for that. We're to be, we're to be the best at what we do. It doesn't mean we work ourselves to death, but I mean we are to be a notch above everybody else. We're to be an example. If anything, we're to be an example of, of what it means to be a good worker. When somebody says, you don't work as well as that pagan over there, there, there's a problem with that. Paul is saying, you know what I did. You watched my life. You, you've observed me working night and day with, with my hands to, to not only provide for my needs, but the needs of everybody's around me. You watched. You observed me. Now I want you to go do it. I want you to do what I did. And then in verse 3, we'll talk about this next week, he gets on to flesh this out a little bit more, what it means, even your sanctification. And he's going to hit this issue of their sexual purity 
in a pagan culture. Now, we have the same problem today. So I got this little pager. I don't know if the thing is still on here. We'll close with this here. Um, uh, what was it? It wasn't the business section. It was uh, one of the news sections here where it says that Victoria's Secrets is expecting to get over 1 billion website hits tonight as they have this live whatever it is, fashion, whatever. 1 billion hits on their website tonight. They're, you know, the models there with their lingerie and all that. And I'm sitting here thinking, we have the same problem. So what are we doing here? Let's go find a... No, I'm just kidding. You know. Yeah, but the whole, the whole issue is we live in a world that sexual purity, what's that? Paul tells us what it's going to be. We'll see that in the next section. Any comments or questions? All right, we'll uh, take a short break and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time. Uh, I pray that we'd be reminded of what is said here, Father. We would see Paul's heart. And I pray that you convict us to be men of God, men who exhibit godly character, who act out what it is to be a Christian and not just talk about being a Christian but actually be one and uh, we thank you for this time of study in Christ's name, Amen Thank you for listening This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.